Modern medicine is advancing at faster speeds than ever before. Yet the world still sees the healthcare experience as difficult and dated. The Real Chemistry podcast shares interviews with industry leaders who are innovating in healthcare. Join Real Chemistry's Chief Marketing Officer, Aaron Strout, as he explores how AI and ideas can come together to transform healthcare into what it should be. Good afternoon. This is Aaron Strout, Chief Marketing Officer of Real Chemistry and host of the Real Chemistry podcast. And today you will be hearing from my uh, occasional guest host, our chairman and founder, Jim Weiss, who's partnered with me to do podcasts with people like Dr. Scott Gottlieb and Dr. Monica Gandhi, many others. And today he's going to be talking to a friend of Real Chemistry's, Mark Martin, who is a managing director at Houlihan Loki, a leading investment bank in the healthcare space. And they cover a lot of ground. Uh, They talk a little bit about the proliferation of data into the marketing and comms world beyond just in the the healthcare world. They talk about certain trends we're seeing, life after Silicon Valley Bank and the meltdown there and what does that mean going forward. Examples of companies that are doing a good job that are innovative and who is, you know, sort of investing in those companies. Uh, And then for a little bit of fun toward the end, Mark is a big surfer talking about how that relates to his business and what lessons he's learned. So I hope you enjoy it as much as I did and uh, take a listen and please, as always, let us know your thoughts. All right, well, let's jump into it and I'll, you know, just say, you know, welcome, Mark, to our uh, Real Chemistry podcast. Good we have on this, yeah, we're no no uptightness, and I will say, you're now um, now that I learned that Sally Sussman is also a deadhead. Now I will have you know another deadhead on the phone with us uh, on the line with us that I really haven't experienced so many in business that I can remember in my career, um, or that we're certainly talking about it. Um, so we're all grown up we welcome now. You. Yeah, we welcome you, Mark Martin. And we met, you know, as you know, through the process of uh, our evolution and sale from Mountain Gate Capital uh, to New Mountain Capital, which is now about four years ago uh, when that happened. Obviously, we met before that, but probably going on more like five years when you count, you know, the time to get ready and prep for that. But obviously, that was a successful transition. I don't know that we even saw how really good this could go, um, moving from Mountain Gate to New Mountain. Um, but I was curious to know from your side, obviously from my side, I know, you know, we've grown about a hundred million dollars a year for the last, um, you know, four or so years, uh, but, and, and obviously improved our margins and done, you know, incredible breakthrough work for clients and, you know, created new advocacy relationships and did incredible things all through the pandemic, um, adding well over a thousand people, now numbering close to 2,500 people um, in the system of of real chemistry, uh, working with some of the most innovative, interesting clients, you know, we've ever worked with. So we're excited about how this turned out. But I was wondering from your perspective, um, what did that experience set off for you? Yeah, it's a good question because it 
I'll unpack it a little bit. And I, I think maybe we start off by saying this transaction that we're referencing, and it does, it, it feels like ages ago, actually, but it actually wasn't that long ago. It, and, and it re-rated this entire segment. I mean, it overnight changed the way that people, particularly private equity investors, viewed valuation, viewed the art of the possible here. And for me, I, I think, you know, it set my career on a completely different trajectory, just to be completely honest, you know, specializing, kind of going all in on this segment. Whereas prior to that, I was broader and, and not as narrow. And, you know, part of that was seeing, I think, what the potential was for a sophisticated business, a data indexing business in this space, what that could do, what that could look like financially, what that could look like in the eyes and the outcomes of a patient. And it, it's it's changed my career path, certainly. And it's, you know, I think it's probably fair for us to say that anyone who's sold a business in this space since then has benefited from, I think, some of the path that you 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 really put out there to start off. And, um, you know, it didn't hurt to have a prolific investor in the healthcare space like New Mountain come in and, and make that investment. And I think we got to give credit to Bruce Rogers and the Mountain Gate team because they, you know, this was some of their best work, I think, also alongside you in their own right, helping kind of blend data, marketing, seeing your vision, and I think getting it to that, getting it to that next level. So, well, a lot of times I get asked that, you know, what's it like to work with private equity? And, you know, is that a good thing? And I know I always like to say I was ready for it. But of course, you got to be matched with the right group. And, you know, it took a little while to get there. I was ready to do it. And over three, you know, less than three years with Mountain Gate and now about four with New Mountain, I really have found how helpful, you know, when it's done right and well, it's good. And obviously, we have to do our part in it, which is to deliver good results. And Shankar and Jen and Kevin and Emily and Ron and, and uh, you know, uh, Bob and Wendy and all the whole team over at Real Chemistry, you know, are doing an incredible job, you know, and now that I'm chairman, you know, they once in a while let me weigh in um, and help. And I'm really glad to still be helping, you know, with people and clients. Um, I just feel the way, you know, both groups played their part in our evolution and continue to play their part. Um, you know, I, I, I agree with you. You, you got to be grateful um, when it works, because I've certainly heard it doesn't always work. Um, but I think if you're both committed, you know, that's important. So do you have any secrets that you impart to companies as they're going through this process of what to think about, you know, to make it as successful as you can? And what are some of the common misconceptions some of the companies coming to you have? Yeah, I think there tends to be a generalization from a lot of the entrepreneurs in the space that private equity is one organism without nuance. And as you found, and you you just happened to partner with one of the more, from a cultural perspective, Mountain Gate's top notch. And then you found New Mountains to some degree a bigger Mountain Gate um, in the sense that they've got that. Oh, God, a bigger. Oh, yeah, true. Fair point. But I think from their their approach and kind of the personalities there, you don't really dilute the personal experience. And I think my advice to anyone who's going through this for the first time is 
look at the nuances. These are people, the partner, whomever you're going to work with. Like you're getting married to this individual and that team and almost to some degree more than the logo at the top of the door. It's it's the personalities and making sure it's going to fit. And, you know, I think when we certainly when we work with entrepreneurs in this business, as we do with you, we try to maximize those touch points so that it feels you get a real authentic view of what these people are like, what makes them tick. Are they going to share your vision? What what is it like when things go bad, if they go bad? And that's that's kind of what I think defines a successful partnership. It's, it's a lot more than financial, for sure. Oh, it is. Yeah, there's no question that I call it being ambidextrous. You know, there's you've got to obviously, you know, continue to grow and do the innovative, cultural, great things, but also run a great business. And you've got to balance those. And I don't know that everybody understands how to do that so well and also build your team you know the the beauty of the whole thing that in both cases was we added capabilities for the benefit of our clients so that we didn't have to ever turn them away or say no um to anything and you know obviously we don't do everything and probably never will but i think the ability to add great people i think you made a great point here that people have a lot more to do with this. And I'm about to segue into technology. And I know everyone's freaking out that the machines will take over and people will be obviated and, and, and you know, uh, obliterated in this uh, revolution of AI and all of that. I mean, the healthcare industry is certainly no stranger to data um, and technology. So between EHRs and MRIs and the clinical trials and multi-omics and all the things that are really revolutionizing the field and advancing things way more quickly than we probably are even ready for. Um, you know, and the proliferation of data and tech to drive marketing and communications businesses. Um, let's talk about how and why and sort of what are the latest trends you're seeing, you know, and what are the most interesting areas you're looking at these days? And it would be interesting to hear you know, your perspective on the AI revolution. I know it's sort of everyone's on everyone's mind. And don't people still count in all of this? Yeah, that's it's it's a lot to talk through and unpack. And I think, to be honest, I think people are a little bit, I don't want to say paralyzed isn't the right word, but I think there's a there's certainly a more than an awareness right now around what open AI can do. Um, you know, I would say maybe before we dive into AI, even just the way that people are using data and technology now, I mean, it's evolved a lot since certainly since we did our deal together back in 2019, you know, I think targeting some ROI transparency and social scraping has quickly really evolved into ultimately, you know, going beyond measurability. It's really trying to, productize it's trying to add actual automation and at least some efficiency to the human-based offerings um I, I my perspective is that there is a symbiotic relationship between the two i, I don't want to say that it's not going to impact a few headcounts here and there i think that would be foolish and i think we're still learning but i think the common the common theme i'm seeing is that you know take a patient journey mapping initiative for example there are ways that content can be created you can use technology i think particularly around content creation i think the ai piece just calls for more oversight it calls for probably increased regulatory 
quality control, et cetera, that you're going to have to be on top of. But look, I think the even before this kickstarted a bit this year, I think as the open AI really came into the forefront, I think data and technology were already making a big dent in this space and certainly supplanting some of the human-based offerings, making them better. Um, you know, omni-channel, everyone what needs to be omni-channel is trying to be omni-channel. Um, you know, tracking and analyzing engagement data, that's happening much more uniformly. Um, it's really leveraging data to get the right drug to the right HCP or patient at the right time. And anything you can do to do that is differentiating you from your, your competition. Now, my personal perspective is still holding open AI aside. I feel like your firm, there are a subset of firms and we don't need to go into names, but I think there are people that are doing this with innovation and really leading and indexing more towards technology. It's more native to their DNA. I think there's also a lot of people that are trying to replicate that more from a positioning standpoint to try to differentiate their services more than they're actually incorporating that into kind of the nucleus of their decision-making. And that's a gray area right now. I'm sure it'll get grayer as we go forward, but you know, I think it's, it's no unquestionably the successful businesses in this space. Those that realize the increased demand are going to be the ones that are at least set up from an infrastructure standpoint, from a cultural perspective, to be first movers on whatever AI becomes. I, I think that's a certainty. Well, I certainly understand gray area, as you can tell. I have a lot of gray area. <laughs> um, but I will say that... To me, it's like what took everyone so long. I mean, from 08, even 2010, we've been incorporating this. To me, non-health businesses were already embracing quite a bit of this in the marketing zone. Um, you know, content and regulatory, a lot of this stuff, you know, already been offshored. And so I don't think any of this is new. I always feel like everyone gets you know, beside themselves, but it's like, well, what, where have you been? It's been going on. And, you know, my view was certainly let's incorporate this early and often and let's continue to evolve it and let's be part of the solution on responsible use and appropriate use of these technologies. You know, in healthcare, I think it's hard to, to really not do that given the regulatory environment. Um, but I would say, again, mostly there is a positive influence in all this. So, you know, I was wanting to get a little more specific, you know, what segments with the, within our commercialization ecosystem are the most sought after for deals, acquisition, you know, and, you know, for the more, I would say, innovative acquirers in the space, and maybe everybody is, you know, at this point, you know, everybody's looking for that. But I'd be curious to hear, you know, as specifically as you can, what are the types of things are, are holding the most interest for buyers and in the market? Yeah, I mean, I'd say it's continuing to be, and maybe I'll bifurcate it a little bit between the historically post-launch organizations and kind of the pre-launch organizations. I think they're, in my mind, they're taking kind of two different approaches. I would say the the post-launch organizations, and, and there's gray lines around all this too, as we know, but the ones whose DNA, whose legacy started more in that post-launch promotional space, they've tended to be the, the better adopters to technology, I think, and data, unquestionably. Um, and so they're looking harder, harder, and harder for 
tools, any type of productization, anything that can actually hyper-segment, automate any any piece of the patient journey mapping, any piece of the, you know, all along that trajectory, they're trying to add efficiency through data and technology. Um, I would say that the pre-launch organizations, so these are traditionally the Medifairs focused ones, Medcoms, whatever you want to call it. Um, they have not been as quick to adapt that. I, I think what they're looking to do part of the time is acquire into that. And frankly, I think the ones that are already good at it, the more, like, uh, excuse me, post-launch organizations, they're actually focused more on applying the the tools that they're using more in the promotional phase. They're looking to go and actually buy, or, buy into HOR, buy into pricing access, buy into medcons, and be able to actually apply some of those tools and technologies that work for them, whether it's all the way up, up front into the clinical trial recruitment phase as well. So I, I think technology is, is, is it's evolving that part of the space as well. I will say, Jim, there's a there's a silver bullet people are looking for in terms of a perfect analytics firm that segments data, segments RWE, whatever it is, and incorporates that to hyper hypercharge marketing. Those aren't growing on trees at the moment, and people are looking for them, but they're just there isn't a perfect fit for the most part. Um, so I think there's a probably more of an effort for some of the forward leaning firms to actually build this in house. I just think it takes time. It does. I mean, the way I look at it is, you know, the way the entertainment industry evolved, you know, there are real precise, you know, shows for exactly the type of person you are and what your interests are. And I don't think it's terribly different in our zone. I mean, remember, just in cancer alone, the way it's treated is by tumor type. So, you know, everybody's going to be looking very specifically in their tumor type. I mean, yes, immunotherapy and immunology unite a across a lot of them, but you know, at the end of the day, that is mostly how things are looked at very precisely. So you're right, there's never gonna be one size that fits all in terms of data solution um, and all of the rest. So I think that's kind of a, an important um, point that you just made. You know, I, I think people are looking for something that doesn't exist. It's a unicorn that you're not going to find, but you really do want to find people that know how to manage and and utilize and leverage a wide range of these solutions. That I do think, and that is definitely something at Real Chemistry we've focused on is having, you know, broad and deep capabilities, not just, you know, not just one, but understanding the whole system. So on the buyer and seller sides, what traits are you looking for in each? You know, when you choose partners or go out and look for targets, um, what were what would you say are the most impactful characteristic that drive valuations? Um, and you know, how does innovation play into that equation? Is it how important is it um, these days, in particular, for the marquee businesses as as we've talked about? Um, you know, maybe comment a little bit on on what you're looking for on the buy and sell side. Yeah, innovation in any shape or form. I mean, I think that's a, a separate topic almost in it, in itself. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned it because I would say broadly, people or firms in this space are looking for somewhere to plant their flag of differentiation. And and I do think as there's been more just notoriety around this space, more PE investment, I do think the bar is a bit higher to prove differentiation. And a lot of that has to come through innovation. 
um, you know, to, to answer your question around valuation or what, what we're looking for, or what kind of almost advice for defining characteristics to drive drive valuations for the best businesses. It's interesting. I mean, we've we've regressed the data every way you can. Organic growth really continues to be the primary, probably most deciding factor for the premium valuations in this segment. Yeah, PE wants to see the ability to, to do M&A. Um, you know, different firms will debate about whether it's better to start with a pre-launch platform or, or post-approval platform. Um, but it really comes down to, I think, demonstrating that that organic growth and the ability to keep doing it. Because I think when people look at these businesses now, that's not just a financial characteristic. It's also a bit of a barometer for the relevance of your capabilities. No one's perfect. And that's not always telling the full story there. But it's hard to dispute that. It's hard to dispute that continued trust from these customers. And of course, the EBITDA margins need to be, you know, I think consistency there is important. You know, ideally, they're above 20%. If you get to 30% on growth or margins, you're in very rare territory. But I think as you as, as you unpack all the different quantitative metrics on these businesses that have really gone in the, the excellent category from a valuation standpoint, organic growth is the, is the common thread across all of them. Well, we're aligned there. That's all yeah, I've ever are. cared about, really, and and mainly organic. You know, we've grown double digits for 20 years, uh, year over year for 20 plus years. And yeah, organic growth rules. We we always say OGR. Um, and it, it it is. And there's nothing better or more gratifying than helping, you know, your clients grow, right? And that's that's how we see our role. So as long as you have that, you know, laser focus, and we, I think a lot of things have changed here over the years, but that focus on client benefit um, really has never left. And and if as, as long as we have that, I think you can drive that part of it. So what yeah. would you say, you know, so on this topic? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Um, be very good at what you do best first. Be excellent about be excellent at what you're good at doing before you worry about adding ancillary capabilities in any shape or form. I think, and part of that is because, well, you've got to follow your own nucleus. And I think there's some, some real value to that, but it goes back to the organic growth piece. And that's the best way to actually drive that and sure you do. I also think that I've certainly seen the strategics in this space, whether it's the PVAC strategics, the public ones, they're increasingly looking for more of a laser-focused, compartmentalized offering because that's going to fit a little bit easier into whatever the puzzle piece that's missing from their DNA is. And so if you're a smaller business that's growing quickly, PE is going to love that if you're growing quickly and are, are demonstrably differentiated in a certain niche. And you're going to have a broader aperture of strategics interested if you're, that, if you're, if you're the best business in a certain area. And, and look, when you get bigger and once that becomes such a slam dunk that you're not having to focus as much on it, not that you ever stop, start, then you start thinking about where's the industrial logic on expanding horizontally or whether it's market access or whatever, something that can be symbiotic with what you're offering your clients. But I think trying to prepackage something and build it through growth without keeping that organic nucleus, is, it, it's a harder proposition. Well, I think the growth, like to your point, should be organic and natural. So whatever you add 
should be, I used to talk about the rule of three. If three clients ask me, then I know they naturally want that as an ancillary piece that they're getting asked about on their side. So it's, it's again, I, I think unique to all of this is that I was on the client side and designed this company. You know, I know for sure um, with that in mind, how a client would think and how they would want to access. I, again, I think no client thinks one place can do everything and do everything well. And, you know, I don't think anybody really truly believes that or gets that experience. Um, you have to prove that by adding the right things. And often you co-develop your company with your client if you're really doing it well. All right, let's move out of the micro and into the macro in the in our environments. Stuff we can't control, which is something, of course, I hate, um, you know, if one can't control. Likewise. So what does the world look like post-Silicon Valley Bank and the debt ceiling deal and the ongoing war and you know, recession fears and everything else. I mean, is that been a bit of a climb? Mean, when we first met, it was the beginning of a bit of a frenzy, as you and yep. I know. And then we had COVID. We haven't even talked about that um, and the pandemic that we somehow, you know, navigated. And then coming out of that, you know, we're a good year past, you know, what has essentially been the endish of it. What do you think the macro environment is like right now? Yeah, I mean, I can tell you at a very, very high level, you, you mentioned Silicon Valley Bank and the debt ceiling. I, I do think this year, unquestionably, firms paused. You know, the, And I think if you have an A business, for the most part, people are waiting until the clouds clear a little bit at the macro level to launch those, partly you know, partly because debt, the debt is not necessarily proven for the larger deals. And yes, it's more expensive. I would say, you know, we have high class problems in our space because it's mostly equity, but the debt matters, especially when you're getting to the valuations that we've previously been talking about. Um, so the debt, the debt needs to return a little bit. And I think anyone who's pr pretending to know what the catalyst is going to be or setting a false date around a holiday is they're they're guessing at this point. And, and I think I'm not going to pretend to have any more insight aside from the fact that I do see there is more activity at the moment and more people are preparing to launch. Um, and, you know, that is that alongside some of the slightly increased deal activity of just across MA, I think is it's making it feel a bit more positive potentially towards the end of the year. Um, you know, it's, it's, but it's, it's a strange time and diving in a little more specific to our space here, you know, the fact that the FDA had a, a reduced amount of approvals last year and their own internal staffing issues, you know, I think there's been some some industry-wide nuances here that just we, we haven't had to deal with in the past, or certainly the previous years before that, the first uh, previous three or four years. And so, you know, I think that's all adding up to give people a, a bit more of a, they have to be more strategic when they're launching. And at the moment, uh, I know a number of folks that are just kind of waiting until there's certainly more of a debt floor for these businesses that are in the billions, obviously, because it's an important part of the capital stack. I like to think that the success of real chemistry, you know, was built on a series of well-made mistakes. I always talk about that. You can't be afraid to do that. And, you know, we're going to get into your surfing. And I know I talk about analogies around skiing 
Um, you know, if you're not falling, you're not learning and, you know, you're not figuring out, you're not making mistakes and pushing yourself. Um, you know, tell us about a time when you made a mistake or missed an opportunity that ultimately paid off in another way. You know, you might have thought this sucks, but then turned it into an opportunity. I mean, I make mistakes every day. I mean, honestly, the way at the time when I really doubled down on being very narrowly but deeply focused in this commercialization segment, that was not what my peers were doing. And and there were times when, you know, rewind to 2018 and, and even before, there were times when certainly peers that were doing CRO, CDMO, they were kind of doing the full pharma services gamut. I questioned if I had made the right decision. I kind of had a thesis that this segment was going to be special and and some of that was yet to be seen or recognized by investors. So yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, there were there were times where I was looking over my shoulder wondering if I was too narrow. And I, I guess in hindsight, you know, I, I I could never have known that this was going to take off the way it did, just this segment. But I think fortunately, you know, having that laser focus probably gave me some more industrial credibility with these founders that you know probably helped along the way. I guess that probably helped along the way ended up being, you know, maybe what looked like a bit of a mistake ended up being long-term a more successful strategy than I realized. Yeah, no, I can relate to that. Anyone help you along the way, particularly? You did. And I'm not plugging that. There are, I think everyone's success, you know, you can throw in whatever cliche. Anyone who watches reality shows are going to think I teed that up and set you up. They are, but I think this is clearly not rehearsed. They, um, no, I think everything, I'm not going to throw any cliches in, but I, I do think that there are, there's a couple people that matter and a couple things at the right time that matter. And you kicked it off with this, so I'll throw it back at you. Yeah, our our partnership mattered a lot. Um, it changed the trajectory for me. And I think um, there's some other people. I won't go through an Oscar list and, and read them off, but um, those people matter. You got to remember them and make sure you recognize it. So. I agree with that. That's Good really talk. important point. You know, that we, you know, it's always, I always tell folks, you know, it's so important to keep that network is important, but, you know, really someone said it to me the other day, I actually was talking to a, another private equity guy, um, but he came out of politics and he was talking how important people were to this whole equation. Again, you know, much more important than the money, the money comes but the critical factor is the people partnership that's so critical to all this. And um, I, you know, it was good to hear it reinforced. I took it in um, and I appreciated it. And sometimes you can lose sight of it, but I, I think there's nothing more critical. And and when you think team and all the rest, I mean, I was just at the ASCO meeting and AstraZeneca is one company as well as Merck and a few others that, had terrific data, but AstraZeneca was talking about, you know, it took a full team. It's it's more than one person that ever creates these breakthroughs. And I think that's true in all business. And But let's bring it back to the individual. I know in a more individual sport, you know, you're a big surfer. Um, and I don't know if everybody knows that in addition to being, you know, a, a bit of an amateur musician, but we can move on from there too. But um what has surfing taught you about how to conduct business? It's taught me to approach this a bit differently. I don't think I really have a choice. And and I think to do it with my own brand of authenticity and hopefully em embrace being different 
Um, I don't golf. I'm horrible. I don't want to take the time off surfing when I have free time or being a dad. Um, I don't play, I don't play golf. I don't play tennis. I, I know what I love and I do it. It's what makes me passionate. Um, yeah. So I, I think that aspect, I approach this all from a slightly different perspective than most bankers. I'm just, I'm built, I think differently than a lot of bankers just overall as a person. And I think somewhere in there, maybe there's some authenticity that resonates with certain entrepreneurs that, I think authenticity in any shape or form, people are drawn to it. They kind of know when they see it. Um, look, talking about surfing too granularly starts sounding like cliches and postcards, but I would yeah. say um, it, takes, it teaches you to live in the moment, make quick decisions, sometimes face your fears if you're surfing large waves and kind of pushing yourself in, 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 not to sound cheesy, but in situations that are way outside your comfort zone sometimes. So. Okay. I mean, all that's great. And I'm sure it's been done and said, and I know you run a workshop with business people um, on how to, how to surf. Um, you know, we've talked about that. So I imagine that's you why come next time. Check it out. You, yeah. You better be there next time. Yeah. To do something way beyond. Well, now that I can function again, I, I'll be happy to do that. Um, yeah. So uh, finally, you know, I, I always ask this of pretty much everybody, and it is sometimes a, a bit of a curveball. Um, so imagine you're on a deserted island and, you know, being a surfer, that's not hard to imagine. Um, and you could only take one album. Which one oh, would you take? Oh, come on. <laughs> God, you're not going to love this. I'm not going to select a Grateful Dead album, although if you ask me next week or last week, I, I might. Well, they're all in your head anyway, so you don't need it. Yeah, yeah, nice, nice save. Um, and I'm not going to go Dark Side of the Moon or Exile. There's, there, God, there's so many things to pick from. Led Zeppelin is the reason I picked up a guitar when I was young, when I was nine. And it's got to be Led Zeppelin. Led Zeppelin 4 is a cop-out. That's what everyone would pick. Um... It's Led Zeppelin three or house. It's Led Zeppelin three. That's where um, that's where the world really saw a new a new texture, a new layer from Jimmy Page. I think on the acoustic stuff, and he also showed the world he's one of the best music producers and engineers in the studio too. So yeah, there I'm going. I'm going to Led Zeppelin three. I'll change my mind tomorrow, but hey, I think that's pretty legit, and your rationale around it's great and. I don't know if we know if Jimmy Page was a surfer or not. Maybe not. Um, I don't know. I don't know. That'd be worth finding out. Um, Definitely. Sure. Anyway, I like ending on something that is not as, you know. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's a good one to end on. Buying think, and selling. It's a little bit more what, how people can relate. And I think you talked about it, authenticity being really critical. And I know I can relate to that concept because I don't think I show up um, the same way everyone would expect someone in my position to show up. But I think that is what makes changes in the world. And I think what we're working on together, Mark, and I've really enjoyed doing it, you know, I've always been concerned about impact and, you know, making that impact, making the world a healthier place. Those are all really critical things as a health citizen, having gone through it, you know, caring for friends and loved ones. And, you know, I, I don't think there's any more contribution we can make than, you know, making people healthier, helping them gain access to better treatments faster. And I, you know, that's what drives me. So 
you know, thanks for being in that focus, even though maybe it wasn't popular um, or obvious to many. Um, I know it's where I'm going to, you know, really spend a lot of my time um, continuing to innovate. Uh, and I want to look forward to doing much more with you in the years to come in this regard. So thanks. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to. I, I agree. And and you've, you know, this will sound plugged as well, but um, you've always been such an authentic, loyal person. And, and I think the notion when I first met you guys five, six years ago, just around the patient outcome focus of your firm always felt legitimate. It felt authentic. It felt authentic. Um, the transcended some of the money. We all got to be profitable. You know, that's undeniable once you take some PE partners. Um, but I think that's that's been your kind of moral compass as you've gone through this. And it's probably part of the reason why you're you're doing so well. Yeah, no, I think businesses that focus on a hard outcome that makes a difference usually do better than those that don't. So yep. thanks for your help, support, partnership on to the next. Uh, the best is yet to come. Thanks. Good talking, Jim. Thanks. All right. Want more episodes of the Real Chemistry Podcast? Subscribe to our show wherever you listen to podcasts. We post a new episode every Thursday. Visit realchemistry.com for more info.